Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download the app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live in that. Apparently, if you have a Droid now, they've got this new thing. You've got to hit Search button on the bottom. If it doesn't come up by GPS, 93455, enter, and it'll bring up all the sermon notes, the questions, the verses that go along with the sermon, because we're all hip and cool like that. Uh, I, I got two things. One... Uh, we were out here and, and kind of cleaning up the corner a little bit, getting rid of the weeds, and somebody, I don't know if it was you, but uh, like a week and a half ago came and did that whole other section over there, mowed our dirt for us, and and took out some of the weeds, and, and I don't know if you, that was you, thank you, because I don't know who it was, but I, it's always cool when somebody does something nobody knows, and it's just kind of like neat, so so thank you. Some would be like, it was me, <laughs> whatever, thank you, anyway. Uh, one more thing to tell you about, uh, film and theology, we do these things uh, usually every summer, every other Friday night throughout the summer called film and theology, where we take a movie uh, that, that's current and new, and we actually show it to you. We don't cut it like uh, some churches like, oh, we can't say this, we're going to cut. We show it as the director intended it to be seen, so we show you the movie, then we actually talk about it. We, do, we, we talk about it in terms of the gospel, because if you look at Paul, he goes into Athens, he, he takes all of these, these cultural metaphors that the people were using of the day. And so what we will do is we will take in the cultural metaphors of the day, movies, and we will talk about how the gospel relates in the context of what a writer or director we think is trying to say and how to put that together for you. So I think it starts on June 15th and it goes all through the summer. Most of the movies are sci-fi movies. <laughs> it just worked out that way. Uh, but they're good. I'm not talking like cheesy sci-fi with Muppets. All right? I'm talking like, like decent sci-fi that have like a story or something of some sort. Really? I mean, I love sci-fi, so it doesn't really matter. I even like the cheesy Muppet sci-fi, so whatever. If it's sci-fi, it's good. All right, why don't you stay on me, reading God's Word. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 70 to 72. It says, He spoke by mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning we would be a people who understand Your covenant to us. And that we would begin to walk in that covenant of grace and goodness. And that you have been a God who has bound yourself to your people in covenant. And that we would better reflect what that looks like in our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So we're going through the book of Genesis. This is week 17. You can open your Bibles to Genesis 9. That's where we're at. Uh, I don't know if you, if you notice, usually when we do series, we, we kind of come through and change the decorations. This is supposed to be a water theme. If you didn't know, it's like, wow, I finally get it. 17 weeks later, wow, it's so good, right? So we do this whole water thing. This is like beginning of Genesis all the way through Noah. In a few weeks, we're going to finish up Noah's story, and all the decorations are going to change. So if you're tired of looking at this, it's going to be different in just a few weeks. Uh, but today, we get to one of the most amazing things in the scriptures. And it starts this idea of covenant, the understanding of covenant. Now we're going to talk more about covenant as we go through Genesis, uh, but here we're going to mainly hit it and then walk through what it means. Today, if you talk about covenant, we narrowly define it as like an agreement between two people. But for God, it really becomes the basis of our relationship with him. Now, in the ancient world, there are two kinds of covenants. There's what's called a unilateral covenant. And a unilateral covenant is made between a more powerful party and a less powerful party. And then there's what's called a bilateral covenant. And a bilateral covenant is made between equal parties, like trading partners or something like that. In a unilateral covenant, a more powerful party is always after something. Otherwise, they wouldn't enter into this covenant. So they're after like grazing lands or water rights or rite of passage or something like this. Uh, This is perfectly illustrated in Santa 
Santa Maria today, because right over here where Union Valley is, they want to put it all the way through to go up to the freeway. And Walmart came in and bought that whole chunk of land right there because they want to build a distribution center. And everybody says, no, 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 you can't build a distribution center. So Walmart buys all the land and says, ha, now what are you going to do? Right? We're going to enter into a covenant so they can get the distribution center. And our county is trying to eminent domain it. Should not happen. You shouldn't take somebody's land. But that, that's kind of the whole idea of what's going on over there. You've got to understand that in any covenant God makes with Israel or with us, it's a unilateral covenant. There is a higher power that is God, and then there's a weaker power that is us. So the question becomes, what does God get out of this covenant? Now, we all know what Israel got out of the covenants eventually. They get deliverance in the Exodus. They get freedom in the new covenant in Christ. We get life that makes sense, community, identity, value, destiny. But what does God get out of any covenant? I mean, God knows the human race. He knows our heartache, the ingratitude, the darkness, the sin that is in all of us. What does God get out of any covenant? Well, that's what I talked about a couple weeks ago. God gets to continue to show his glory and his good. God blesses, God loves, God pours out all the affection and warmth of his infinite heart. What else does God get? God gets rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn little sons and daughters that he chooses to love. I mean, that's, and that's God. That should make us immensely humble. This is something that God does. This is why the writers of the Old Testament were totally undone by God, who was free to do whatever he wanted, would bind himself and restrict himself to the covenant. But that's what God's love does. That's why throughout the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, you will see that many times they don't just call God God. They call him the God of the covenant. He is the God of the covenant. 285 times in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, he is the God of the covenant. No other God in any religious faith did that because there is no other God. So in Genesis 9, we get to covenant. It could be called 1.0, but I think it's more like 1.3 because the first one God makes is to Adam and Eve after they sin and fall in the garden and God promises to send himself as a redeemer. Genesis 4.15, God covenants to protect Cain. And here in Genesis 9, God makes another covenant. So we're going to read all of this and then we will talk about it. Genesis 9, starting in verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's funny he says this to the guys. Now, if you're a lady, what are you thinking? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What's your first thought? Stretch marks, right? Oh, my goodness. What's good? What's good? Have you seen this? It's not going to be like this in a couple years. It's, oh, my goodness, it's crazy stuff. Now, what you have to understand is God is reiterating this because what he wants people to know is that human life is more valuable than everything else on the earth because we are made in the image of God. We are different than everything else. We have value and worth and dignity because we are made in the image of God. Now, today, that's not so much carried over into how we think about things. Today, it's almost easier in our world to convict somebody of animal cruelty than it is of rape or molestation. There's a former PETA president that actually said this, a pig is a dog is a rat is a boy. So if you drive down the street and there's a rat in the street and a boy and you can't get out of the way, you're going to hit one of them, you flip a coin. I'll tell you, in Christianity, the rat goes every time you run it over in Jesus' name and the boy lives. And we say, thank God, one last rat on the planet. See, animal life and plant life has, is value, should be respected, but human life is more so. So God continues, he says, verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. This is a different admonition than if you were here in Genesis 1, where God says, you know, basically you, you rule, you have stewardship, dominion, you take care of the things underneath you. Because human beings don't do this correctly, we, we, we keep sinning. What happens is God says, now we're Everything's going to fear and dread you. 
rather than you living how you were called to live in stewardship and responsibility. And secondly, you have in Genesis 1 and 2 this idea that we were to eat vegetables and our food comes from plants. Here now we're given permission to eat anything. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And we say, praise God, something good came out of the flood. This is, this is awesome right here, beginning of meat. If you're a vegetarian, thank God for you. Wonderful. If we all ate meat, the prices would go up. So keep going the way you are. It's great. I go to a barbecue. I love vegetarians at barbecues because I get more meat. It's a happy place. I'll eat their portion. And this is like, God says, you can eat anything now, even fish. I mean, fish wouldn't be so bad if it didn't taste like fish. But, you know, it'd be okay. But you get chicken and steak, beginning of grilling. Eventually, New Testament, you get to bacon. And bacon is glorious, right? Oh, my goodness. It's like you could... Wow, who knew the pig tasted so good? But you, know, but you cook it and then it splatters on you. It's like the hot grease of the pig's revenge, but it's bacon. So you eat the bacon, it, it's good. It's like God kind of says, you had a hard go on the ark. You know, barbecue something, it'll be better. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So basically what he says is when you eat something, cook it thoroughly. Our USDA tells you this. Amazing how it goes all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. God says, cook it thoroughly. It could wake up and bite you. You don't want that to happen. Make sure you you, you cook it thoroughly. This is a lot of wisdom from God. Because what God, again, is saying is making the difference between you and animals. Animals go out into a field, they capture something, they kill it, and they start ripping into the flesh right there. God says, no, you shoot it, kill it, grill it. That's the order. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. This means if an animal hurts a person, mauls a person, what do you do? You get rid of it. I mean, if you have a dog, jumps the fence, attacks a little kid, you get rid of the dog. Uh, I love my dog, but if my dog hopped a fence and mauled a kid, it's over. Now, my wife was watching Judge Judy, which is a standard thing you hear me say a lot, I know. Judge Judy, okay. So I walk in the house, this week, I walk in the house, she's watching Judge Judy, and there's these two people litigating against each other. This one lady's riding her bike down the street, and this other lady's dog saw her jump through their screen, ran out and attacked this lady on her bike. And this, this is the defense of the lady that owned the dog. She said, he's never done that before. Right, never doing it again either. It's done, right? It's just, it's just over. That, that's the point. It's an animal hurts a person. It's just gone. And then God says, for her, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So this is not war or self-defense. This is just one person murdering another. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. He keeps coming back to this. Men are different. Humankind is different. We're made in the image of God. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it, have babies. Verse 8, Then God said to no one to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. And what you see, this is called the Noahic covenant. This is Noah's covenant with God. It's my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. There could be a monster soon there could be a tsunami but no worldwide flood again so don't worry about being stuck in a bad kevin costume movie called Waterworld. we're gonna be okay verse 12 and god said this is the sign of the covenant that i make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations i have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when i bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds i will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh when the bow is in the clouds i will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between god and every living creature of all flesh that is 
on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So usually when there's a covenant, there's some type of outward sign. Here it's a rainbow. I know rainbows have been co-opted into whole, all kinds of things, but a rainbow is supposed to remind us that God killed sinners and it is a designation of grace that God has made covenant with us again. Now, as I said, there are two kinds of covenants, unilateral and bilateral, but there are also different types of covenants as well. There's what, what was called a limited covenant. A limited covenant is like a marriage. In my marriage, it is my wife and I, nobody else. If you try to become part of that, you will die, all right? Limited covenant. And then there's also conditional based upon terms. In, in the scriptures, limited and conditional, Second Chronicles 7.14, God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, a lot of people try and take that and say, oh, this is America. We just No, this was written to Israel. It was limited and conditional to Israel. Now, should we humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways? Of course we should. Of course we should. But this was actually limited and conditional to Israel. There's also unlimited for all time. This would be like Noah's covenant. And then there's unconditional. Unconditional is what brings God and people together. Some are binding forever for Noah. Some are limited. Unconditional, unlimited is God's new covenant with Christians in Christ. Now, we'll come back to that. Now, our problem today is that when we hear the word covenant, we usually equate covenant with rules. And we like to think, oh, we're so free-spirited and, and we should be able to do whatever we want. And so the question becomes, does God intend for his covenant to be viewed as a straitjacket? No. Okay, in case you're wondering, no, the answer is that, no. Does becoming a Christian covenant mean we would miss out on being free and being fully alive and all the good stuff that God intends? No. So what I want to do is help you understand covenant by making us look at one of the most important covenants and a covenant today that everybody knows, even if they don't believe in God, they've heard of this. It's called the Ten Commandments. So open your Bibles to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. It's actually in 20, but we're going to start in 19 because there's a backstory. Because when God gives this covenant to the people, they're at a place called Sinai. Whole backstory goes along with this. God brought his people out of Egypt and slavery into freedom. So death into life. He is giving them freedom. This is what he says to Moses in Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. He says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that is a lot of the themes of scripture. That it is slavery to freedom. This is important in the scriptures. God has set us free. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now God has not even given the Ten Commandments yet, so this arrangement is not based on their prior obedience or legalism. The language that God is using for Israel here is these people marked by centuries of slavery as he says, you have value. You are my treasured possession. You have an identity. You're going to be a holy nation. You have a destiny. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be channels of how my divine presence reaches the rest of the earth. You have this destiny. And you will have relationship with God. You will have covenant. Covenant. So God's covenants, no matter what form they take, can never be divorced from the God who gave them, especially Ten Commandments and especially the new covenant in Christ. Nothing in covenant ever stands alone. They all come in a relational context. In Judaism, the Ten Commandments weren't even called the Ten Commandments. They were called the Ten Words. And they were meant to flow out of how God designed us to live, who we were meant to be. That's why rabbis for ages would say that we don't necessarily break the Ten Commandments, but we break ourselves on them. Because today, you know, you're going to see the Ten Commandments are, are, are written on stone. We are told in, in the New Covenant that, that God writes this on our hearts of flesh, that, that the stone means nothing. It's the heart of flesh. 
But still, when you see people live in this freedom, they just do whatever they want to do when they start breaking all these things, their lives spiral downward because they're breaking themselves against how God designed us to be. So what Moses does, he gathers the people together. He told them, God's going to make this covenant. And then there's this response in Exodus 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What they did is they formed an intention. They said, we will do whatever God tells us to do. And this is good for us, because if you've never actually done that, why not? That is something we need to do. Are you going to live for yourself, or are you going to live for God? And so they formed this intention, and they stood at the base of this mountain, because if God's going to speak, how can you sit? This is one of the reasons I have you stand at the beginning of every message when we read God's word. Because it's not that I'm God and I'm going to speak to you, but that we want to hear what God says, so we want to be open to hear what happens there. And this is a unique event only here, not just in the Bible, but in all of recorded history, the only place that a God is described as coming to an entire people. This becomes formative to Israel, to Jewish identity. In all later centuries, Jews would trace their ancestry back to the people who personally experienced Sinai. They would call them the people who stood there. Today, Jews actually still stand for the chanting of the Asrat Hadabrat, which is the Ten Commandments. It's a way of saying, these words have a claim on me too. The Talmud says, every Jewish soul was present at Sinai. So in Exodus 20, I'm going to take you through the Ten Commandments and try and make these relatable to how God designed us, okay? Number one, chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, or verses 2 and 3 in Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is reality 101. It doesn't even start with a command. It starts with a statement. God is God. And if God is God, then who is not God? All of us. Okay, so what I want you to do is just turn to the person sitting next to you and say, there is a God, it's not you. Just, just do it. You don't have to explain how you know that, you know, just make the affirmation. It's okay, because we all need to hear it. It's not you! Number two, verses four to six, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. What is God jealous for? His people and their freedom. That's what he is jealous for. He says, don't give your ultimate allegiance to something that is simply temporary. And at this point in the Ten Commandments, all the voicing changes. The first two commands, God speaks directly from the third on out. God's spoken about in the third person. Rabbis believe this is because when God spoke, the Israelites were freaked out and they said, Moses, you just talk to us now, please, and tell us what God says. We don't want to hear directly from him because it scares us and we wet ourselves and that's not any good. Number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How do we translate that today? Well, you can't say, oh my God, G-A-W-D, right? God. Don't, don't say God with the damn at the end of it. Oh, you know what this literally means? You don't claim the name of God and not live for him. You don't walk around calling yourself a Christian and then doing the exact opposite of how God calls us to live. He says, stop claiming my name and ruining my name in front of people. Stop it. If you're going to claim to be a Christian, you live as a believer. Number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This means you honor God by resting from your work. You don't worship your work. You worship God. This is what you do. You, you should take some time off and spend time with him. Work and rest. It's a rhythm that God made for us. Number five, verse 12, honor your father and mother. This means even when it's difficult, you esteem the role of fatherhood and motherhood. Even if your family was terrible, you look at how God originally made it to be and you esteem and honor that role. I mean, God even calls himself father. Number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. 
that this is taking of an innocent life. It is not referring to capital punishment or anything like that. But it goes further. This actually means that we stop carrying grudges around. That we actually offer forgiveness. Uh, number seven, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now this includes adultery. Don't commit adultery. Okay? I mean, seriously, basic 101, big E on the I chart, right? Okay, don't commit adultery. But also, going on with that, it means you don't give yourself over to lust. You pursue sexual purity. Number eight, verse 15, you shall not steal. Now, this is not just don't be Catwoman or Robin Hood and steal from the rich and, and give to the poor. This is so much more. It means that we are to live as people who give. You don't go through life simply as a taker. You try and give. Number nine, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this is more than just lying. Okay, much more than lying. This is you be a person of integrity. You speak truth. You speak truth. And number 10, verse 17, you shall not covet. And this actually goes on to the place where it talks not so much just about the action, but the attitude of the heart behind it. Because God cares about our hearts and the actions. When our hearts change and our hearts worship Him, our actions begin to change. And these are the Ten Commandments, and when they had been given, the world was completely changed. Now, when these words were given to the earth, had Israel just traded in one form of slavery for another? Did they used to serve Pharaoh, and now they serve Yahweh? See, yes or no, yes or no both. See, hey, either way, you're good. All right, you're right, whatever. What, what happens here is you see God binds himself in covenant to his people. God actually loses some of his freedom by binding himself in covenant. We, by binding ourselves to covenant, actually become more free. Our obedience usually brings more freedom. I believe there are two great reasons for obeying God. Number one, obedience to God actually increases the freedom that matters most to human beings. You go, what? How does that happen? Well, there's freedom from external constraints. That's, the, that's what we always think. Somebody trying to tell me what to do. But then there's a freedom for something. The freedom for living the kind of life that I was meant to live. The freedom for becoming the person that God always intended for me to be. Freedom for. The problem is today, when we will look at freedom, we only look at it as freedom from external constraints. Freedom from all these things. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. And when I was writing, writing this message, it was six or eight months ago. My wife and I are in New Hampshire visiting her, her family, and she's playing this, this, uh, this Scrabble game on her phone with some of you. It's like 2 a.m. Stop playing Scrabble with my wife at 2 a.m., all right? Because she doesn't listen. Maybe you will. Stop playing Scrabble with her at 2 a.m. So I'm like, stop it. It's 2 a.m. Let's go to sleep. She's all, no. She just keeps going. So then I try reverse psychology. I go, Marianne, I forbid you to shut off that game. I command you to keep playing that game. And she did. So no matter what, it doesn't work. We usually define freedom as freedom from external constraints, the expansion of my own personal rights. i got an inner voice, and I'm going to listen to my inner voice no matter what anybody else says. Now, again... We have great freedom. God's law is written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. So yes, you have great freedom. So let's, let's just take it to its logical extent, okay? Freedom from stuff. You're as free to drink as much as you want, and so you do. But then it starts to get a hold of you, and it starts to damage your health and embarrass your kids and hurt your marriage and, and threaten your work. If you try to quit, what do you soon realize? That you are not actually free. You become a slave. Because it turns out your freedom is not restricted by external constraints. Our freedom is limited by an internal reality that is broken and weak and divided inside of us. So you want to stop drinking, and you can't. Or you want to live a happy and joy-filled life, but you don't. Or you want to quit yelling at your kids or, or learn how to deal with your anger better, but, but you don't. You want to think you're unselfish, but you look at everything you do, and it's totally selfish. We are not free. And the freedom we lack is, is an internal freedom. And, the, and this lack of this inner freedom is much more dehumanizing than all these external constraints. And so how do you actually get real freedom? 
you recognize that there is an order to how God made things. We stop breaking ourselves against how he made us. That there is an, a moral order, a spiritual order, a way things that God designed things to be. That, there's a, that we are not the center of the universe and that we are not the master of our faith, that we are not the captain of our ship. There's a God and we are not him. Command number one of covenant. God has created you and I to live in relationship with him. Him. And freedom comes when we actually live in line with the nature that he made us to live in. This is why biblical writers over and over, you see a strong connection rarely seen in our day between God's law and his covenant and freedom. Psalm 119 verses 44 and 45. I will keep your law continually forever and ever and I shall walk in a wide place. The word wide place is the word freedom. It's wide. We can do all kinds of stuff. I shall walk in freedom for I have sought your precepts. James 1, verse 25 says, But the one who looks to the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the word freedom, the perfect law, the law of freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that's of God's word, he will be blessed in his doing. This is why when you hear people talk about spiritual disciplines, like like reading the scriptures and praying and spending time with God, this is always about Freedom, always. Because when our desires become our God, it always ends up in slavery. But when we submit our desires to God, it always leads to freedom. The freedom that matters most is the freedom that actually comes from obeying God. Number two, we obey God because God alone in the entire universe is worth obeying. If you believe an authority is out to get you and infringe upon your rights, you're going to rebel against it. Anybody here ever been around a strong-willed child? If not, volunteer in the children's department and meet your kids. Okay, strong. How does a strong-willed kid act when they feel like they're under the thumb of somebody? It's not pretty, right? It's like ah, it's like oh my goodness, the head spins around, goo comes out. It's like it's like crazy stuff. This is that what it means to live under the rule and the reign of God? Not at all. Christopher Hitchens died just a little bit ago, but he wrote his nationwide bestseller, God is Not Great. Okay, Atheist, didn't like God at all. He says this, If the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would mean living eternally under a divine totalitarian despot. It would be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse because at least you could die and get out of North Korea. Is that the God of the Bible? Is, is he a God that is a totalitarian despot? Is that what he reveals himself to be? Not at all. He's as far away from that as is humanly possible to conceive. Because when we understand covenant, we understand who God is better. And because of archaeology, we actually know more about ancient covenants than people ever have. Archaeologists have found a large number of ancient covenants, 13th, 14th century B.C., in these, in these Hittite texts of overlords and their vassals. And I think this is really interesting. And I'm, I keep saying it's interesting, but usually it's just interesting to me. You probably don't care, but it's really interesting to me. And they find out as they go through these that covenant was a means to establish a relationship based on faithfulness to a solemn vow between two parties that were not in relationship before. See, God's covenant is not the imposition of a list to restrict freedom. It is about more freedom. God is making a covenant with human beings. No God did that. And ancient covenants always had a provision where you have two copies of this text. So both parties would know what was expected in this relationship, how they treat each other. Both parties would have a copy of this covenant. So if you, if you remember anything about the Bible, Moses goes up and he, and he gets the Ten Commandments and he comes down. And how many tablets are they written on? Two. Two tablets in this. Why are the two tablets? Well, some people today think that, that God can't write small. Right, so, oh, we needed two because it's got five and five. So God's like, number one, me, God. It's like, it's like he's John Hancock and he just writes his name really big on everything, right? That is not what it's like at all. Actually, I have this clip that I wanted to show you because I think it's really funny and kind of illustrates this. So, let me. Hear me. Oh, hear me. 
all pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15. Wait. Ten, ten commandments for all to obey. Have you ever seen that? Like five on one, five on the other, right? You seen that? But that's not how it is. The reason there's two tablets, when the covenant got made, all the stipulations, all the details of the covenant were written down and given to one party and the other party. Each party had a copy of these commandments. One was given to Israel. Who owned the other copy? God. God owns the other copy. It was his copy to remind him of the covenant. Not that he forgets, but that he has bound himself to his people. And then God eventually gives both copies to these people. They put it in what's called the Ark of the Covenant, side by side, because God says, we will be together. We'll be together. It wasn't just a list of rules. This is why the people stood at Sinai, because God was promising his presence. Now, right after this happens, and Moses comes down from this mountain to meeting with God, he comes down and all the Israelites are worshiping a golden calf that they made with their own hands. Totally stupid. But it's something you and I do every single day, too. We worship our cars and our favorite sports team and, and movie stars and bands. We worship all of these stupid things. We do, the, we do the exact same thing the Israelites did. And so what Moses does, he comes down this mountain and he smashes these tablets because he's doing symbolically what Israel just literally did, breaking the covenant with God. And he is saying, Israel, you want to see what you just did? This is what you just did. Because God's covenant was calling them to freedom and they had just bound themselves in slavery again. Soon we get to the new covenant in Christ and all the freedom we get where God writes his law on our hearts. We have to understand that we are not free from God. We are free for God. In Galatians 5, 13 and 14, Paul says, For you were called to freedom. This is, freedom is good. Too many churches today and religions end up being a place that are restricted and legalistic and severe. But God made people to be free and spontaneous and walk in this wide place that he talks about. He says, For you are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes, Don't use your freedom to indulge sin. And most people say, Well, I would never use my freedom to indulge sin. You know, I only gossip when it's comfortable. I only say things when, uh, when I think it needs to be said in a negative way. It's not unreasonable. What we say is, I just want to be able to sin in moderation when it's convenient. That's what we really say. I mean, the issue that comes up around this mostly in our world today is around the topic of sexuality. And you say, you know, people are like, oh, you mean I'm supposed to reserve sexual intimacy for marriage? Well, I don't think so. That's too hard. I mean, have you seen what goes on in our world today? No one does that. It's unreasonable. It's too difficult. Everybody has to decide what is right or wrong for themselves and what time that is. Scott Scruggs writes this, The biggest illusion about sex in our day is not sex is meaningless. Very few people would say sex is meaningless. The biggest illusion is I get to decide for myself what its meaning is. See, I get to decide what's right and what's wrong and, and where I draw the line. You know, true freedom, we don't break ourselves against it, actually says, no, you don't. There's a moral order in the universe and we didn't put it there. There is a God, it's not me, I didn't invent it, and I don't get to define it. Now, because when I talk about sexuality, everybody's walls go up and they go, Stop talking! He's not talking to me, he's talking to you. It's, you know, we all kind of do this thing. So let me see if I can show this more clearly, maybe in another area and another era. Okay, so, so I'll give you an example. Imagine we go back to the Deep South and say 1860, right? And, and slavery is deeply entrenched. You go back there and you start talking about racial equality. We need to have racial equality. 
You talk to somebody who lives in a place where slavery is just normal, and so a white person says back to you, they say, you mean to tell me you think I'm supposed to treat a black person as my equal, to pay them, to eat with them, to set them free, to publicly back their rights? Oh, you got to be out of your mind. I don't think so. That's not how things work. I'd lose my respectability. I'd be a pariah. I'd lose my safety. It's unreasonable. It's too difficult. Nobody does that. Everybody has to decide for themselves what is right or wrong. Actually, no, not at all. God never put racism up for a vote in the scriptures. It was wrong. If everybody in a whole society thought racism was okay, everybody was wrong. Period. Period. We did not create people. We did not create races. We did not create sexuality. We don't get to define their meaning and significance around our desires or current social practices. We just don't. We don't. Tim Keller quotes an early Christian named Diognetus that explains why early Christians stunned the world around them. This is what Diognetus wrote. He said, we share our table with all. We do not share our bed with all. And that just stunned people. Timothy Keller writes, in the ancient world, pagans were promiscuous with their bodies, but stingy with their money. Followers of Jesus were promiscuous with their money, but stingy with their bodies. And they gathered into communities that had a vision of covenant with Jesus where they lived together and this lived out in prayer and generosity and chastity outside of marriage and servanthood. And these became spirit-empowered realities and how they loved the world around them. And the world was stunned because they actually lived for Jesus. The question becomes, could the world be stunned again? Not by a group of people claiming the name of Jesus and holding up signs and protesting and yelling at people, but of people actually living the life that God calls us to live in grace and goodness and hope. Could the world be stunned again? Really. And if you would like to be part of stunning the world, then you want to be part of covenant. Because covenant is amazing. In Genesis 9, God establishes one here with Noah and the entire earth. It is unconditional and unlimited. On a rainy day, I hope you look up and you see a rainbow. And you remember, we should all be dead, but God has hung up his bow and he has showed us kindness. And he's extended covenant to us. I mean, a little bit later, in, you'll see other signs of covenant. When we get to Abraham. Abraham has a covenant with God. You'll be a blessing to the entire earth. And he has a sign of this covenant, and it's circumcision. We'll talk about that in a, few, in a couple months here, about how a hundred-year-old man uh, circumcised himself with a flint knife. The book of Hebrews says he was a man of great faith. Yes, he was. All right. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eventually, we get to the new covenant in the New Testament. This is, this is communion every week. Right? This is our symbol of that. That's why you take a cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You did that in the wine or the grape juice, symbolizing his blood that was shed for you and I. Jesus actually says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It is a reminder that we belong to him and that the law is no longer written on tablets of stone. It is written upon our hearts. And we long to be this people then who stun the world around us by what God is doing in and through us. So we live for Jesus and his covenant of grace that it is freely given to us that our God has bound himself and restricted himself to a covenant that he made with you and I as believers. And so we should be a people who turn around and understand how God made us to be and how he calls us to live and actually live that life in covenant faithfulness with him. Because he is a good God. The band is going to come up. Maybe, if Ryan sees me. Ryan, can you hear me, Ryan? All right, he's waving. Okay. So the band's going to come up. <laughs> and as they do, they sing some of these songs. And we invite you as they sing these songs to take communion. Remember this covenant of grace that is, that is not tablets of stone, but, but written on the flesh of our hearts by his spirit. As you take communion, then the sign of what that is, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer... They would love to pray with you. 
and help you to understand this covenant of grace that God has given to us better. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So you have the opportunity every week, and there's some food and, and stuff in the back. We invite you to, to grab something to eat and say hi to somebody else. Talk to two people this week who came to Element for the first time last week, and then they got yelled at. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. I was here. I tried to block it out. Okay. Anyway, uh, and, and they said that, that only, the only people that said hi to them were people that they knew. No stranger walked up and said hi to them. Really? Really, people? After all this time, what is wrong with you? I'll kick you in the butt. I'm telling you, God has welcomed you and I as his children into his family. God has welcomed us. We should be the most welcoming people on this planet. No one should walk out of this room without somebody saying hi to them. Jesus loves you. Nobody. We need to live the life that God calls us to live. I mean, the, the new covenant in his blood, our God calls us home, makes us his children. We should love each other as well. So look for somebody you don't know. I'll yell at you next week again. <laughs> look for somebody you don't know. Say hi to them. Welcome them as our God has welcomed us. Live in his covenant of grace, giving him glory by all the things that we do, living how he intended us to be. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we be a people who, again, better understand covenant and the grace that you have so richly bestowed upon us as your people. I ask that we would understand the, the grace to the extent that we are humbled and we actually live differently because you have written your truth upon our hearts and that we don't have to have these these tablets of stone that we carry around in an ark we have your spirit that lives in and through us as your people I ask that we would understand your amazing grace, your love how you have taken the chains that have bound us to all of the garbage in our lives and you have cut those and severed them and you have set us free and that we would have this internal freedom to live for you that's not from all these things. It's freedom for living for you and the life you call us to. A life of grace and goodness and hope. Thank you for being our God and loving us the way that you do. Amen.